I'm Hilary Goodnow, host of Plymouth Plantation's podcast, Interwoven. Every time I sit down to have a conversation with one of our amazing guests, we talk about the ways historical stories weave through generations, communities, and cultures to inform our contemporary lives. Our goal is to explore interactions of the varied people who lived along these shores of change 400 years ago. The Pilgrims' 17th century cultures may be long gone, but Wampanoag and other native peoples have remained. The nations are thriving, combining traditional ways of life with the demands of a 21st century world. In a new series of conversations from Interwoven, native men and women from tribes across the nation share with us what it means to them to be native in 2017. Dr. Cedric Woods is our first guest. He's a member of the Lumbee Nation from North Carolina and is the founding director of the Center for Native American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. I grew up in what is the de facto capital of the Lumbee tribe, Pembroke, North Carolina. And my family, both sides, my mom and dad's family, have always been heavily involved and kind of at the epicenter of Lumbee political, uh, educational, cultural activities. For me, as a Lumbee individual, it meant that I grew up in a community that's numerically very large. Uh, so that meant the social institutions in which I was engaged, whether it was school, church, or external activities, was in a community that was predominantly Lumbee, overwhelmingly Lumbee. I think the elementary school I went to, grades K through 6, about 600 students, may have had 20 non-Lumbee students in the entire school. The majority of the teachers, the principal, all those things, all those positions were held by Lumbee people. And that's ironically a direct result of the Jim Crow South, uh, where we actually had a legally segregated separate school system, legally segregated churches uh, up until well into the 20th century. Late 1960s, I think the last school was integrated elementary school in the early 1970s. So that meant that our people had a degree of autonomy in terms of actually running those educational institutions uh, funded by the state. Now we were funded less than the white or even the African American school systems, but we still had a degree of local control. And both my parents are products of those Indian school systems. My dad was a minister in one of the all Indian uh, um, conferences, the Methodist Holiness Methodist Conference. And so those things very much shaped uh, my engagement with my local native community and my very large extended family uh, in that area. It also meant that it was quite surprising for me as a person from that community, that cultural background tied to that particular place, the, uh, the swamps of North Carolina, uh, it made it for a challenging transition when I moved outside of that context uh, where the first time in my life at college I was a minority. I did not experience that frequently in my home context at all. It also meant, though, that you look as an indigenous person to draw on those resilience factors that exist, uh, like coming from a strong, close-knit community, that even though I was away, I didn't sever my ties with my community. I maintained and drew on that strength and those relationships and used that as a foundation to form new relationships with native, other native peoples in other areas and non-native peoples as well. Where did you do your undergraduate and graduate work? did my undergraduate degree at UNC Chapel Hill, my master's degree at University of Arizona in Tucson, and my doctoral work at the University of Connecticut 
its stores. Uh, and also, too, as, uh, as a Lundy here in Massachusetts, I clearly recognize that I am a guest. Even though I'm an indigenous person to Turtle Island, uh, I am also a guest in the traditional territories of Massachusetts, Nipmuc, and Wampanoag peoples here, and before when I lived in Connecticut, Mohegan Pequot peoples there. You call um, this place Turtle Island. What is Turtle Island? Sure, Turtle Island is uh, a name that Iroquois Haudenosaunee people, to whom many Lumbee lines are actually related via Tuscarora ancestry, uh, refer to North America uh, as Turtle Island. And so that's something, a way that we perceive, and it's tied in with the creation story of North America being formed on the back of a turtle. You are currently the director for the Institute of New England Native Studies at University of Massachusetts, Boston. What brought you to Massachusetts and the Boston area? I worked, prior to coming to UMass Boston, I worked for 12 and a half years for the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation. I ended up there after finishing my master's degree at the University of Arizona. Uh, while at Mashantucket, I started my doctoral studies at the University of Connecticut and was really interested, my master's degree and undergrad were both in political science, was in understanding how and why Native communities chose to govern themselves particular ways. Uh, so that involved a heavy historical component, but also an ethnographic component as well. And so I actually jumped disciplines from political science to anthropology for my PhD. And I was able to work closely with an advisor there, Dr. Robert B., who had done lots of really good work, highly regarded work, looking at Native governance. And so I was able to work there at Mashantucket and developed a framework for doing a comparative study looking at sister nations, if you will, with Mashantucket Pequot and, and Mashpee Wampanoag, or the Wampanoag who ultimately became Mashpee Wampanoag as well, and looking at these similar communities and how they made different choices over time based on the various political, social, and economic pressures uh, that they were facing either from other native peoples or from English colonizers and how that shaped their political choices, and how they made those choices to best benefit their communities at any particular point in time. So as a result of meeting Wampanoag people almost immediately when I got to Mashantucket, and doing that research project, when I finished my doctoral research, the position had opened up, the institute had been created, funded by a Kellogg Foundation and funding from the Massachusetts legislature to, to establish it at UMass Boston and they had the funding but they had no director. <laughs> and so uh, I was looking at transitioning out of tribal government administrative work and wanted to work in academia and I was hired on an interim basis. After a little more than a year we did a national search and decided we were both mutually happy with one another and so I became the founding director for the Institute in 2009. And what is the Institute for New England Native Studies goal? Sure. Its goal is to connect regional Native peoples with university innovation, education, and research. And that is intentionally very broad. What it means to me on a day-in, day-out basis is that I engage with regional Native communities, Native organizations, and talk with them about what they view as their interest and needs, and compare that to what we have in terms of capacity at UMass Boston or one of our sister institutions with, with whom we work very closely. 
if we find that there's a very good match, it's my job to figure out how to find the money for it. So it means I spend a lot of my time writing grants to get funded initiatives that directly benefit and engage with regional Native peoples. I also teach on campus as well to increase both the visibility of the Institute, have an American Indian PhD actually in the classroom at Boston. To my knowledge, there are only two of us at UMass Boston, so I'm 50% of the American Indian faculty there. Uh, and also to enhance the offerings of, we have a Native American Indigenous Studies minor program at UMass Boston to make sure that those classes are occurring on a regular basis. And I have several colleagues across the university that teach courses in, in that as well. You spoke earlier to me about the importance of family and education and that your parents really felt that education was a fundamental part of one's life experience. What do you see as young Native people's biggest educational needs in Massachusetts? Hillary, one of the things that I was fortunate to be able to do is we pursued funding from the Mass, Massachusetts Humanities Council. I may get the fu funding name wrong. I'm sorry about that. I think it's the Mass Council on Humanities. But it was funding from the uh, National Endowment for the Humanities. And it was to facilitate conversations looking at the status of the social contract. And so as part of that grant, we conducted a series of listening sessions in Native communities to see what they had to say about what they viewed as important today. Uh, the last comprehensive report done on Native peoples in Massachusetts was written in 1859. So I think we're long overdue for an update. And this by no means was a comprehensive report, but at least we did. We had a session in Mashpee. We had a session in Boston, a session in Worcester in Nipmuc Territory, and then a session out at UMass Amherst to hear from these Native communities and Native students what they viewed in terms of priorities. And some of the things that came out clearly were also issues of challenges both from the student perspective as well as from the broader community perspective. Uh, in relation to students, there was a high degree of concern about lack of culturally appropriate or even accurate curriculum in the school systems. Uh, there was a degree of isolation uh, and even being told by teachers that they did not exist, that they obviously couldn't be Indians because there are no Indians left in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, so it's this concept of indigenous erasure and isolation was a, was a huge thing that they faced and dealt with on a day-in, day-out basis. So in addition to having to navigate the, the angst of coming of age as a teenager uh, in, in general, they're also having to negotiate these issues of having their core identity as Native people challenged and make just a challenge with being able to connect with one another. Uh, there are things like formula funding for Indian education that the vast majority of school districts in the state of Massachusetts do not bother to apply for. Uh, again, because they don't think they have any Native students in their districts. So it becomes a, a vicious cycle that becomes self-perpetuating, and that's one of the challenges that the Native students brought out and clearly articulated as part of their ongoing challenges. Uh, the larger Native communities have ongoing issues of displacement tied to land. And it goes all the way back to the Indian Enfranchisement and Allotment Act. Native people were declared to be citizens versus resident aliens following the Civil War. But what that also did is it changed the nature of land tenure. 
uh, collective ownership of land, whether Native peoples wanted it or not, was ab abolished, and it all became fee simple title. And that rapidly escalated Native land loss following the Civil War up until the Great Depression. So it led to uh, an increasing disintegration of Native communities in terms of cohesive geographic areas and scattered them more across the landscape as they lost territory within their traditional areas. It doesn't mean the communities went away, but it just became much more challenging for them to interact in close personal relations on an ongoing basis. How does the Institute try to uh, address or meet these challenges? Sure. Uh, again, it's driven directly by what Native people are interested in. One, they wanted to have a conversation about what their concerns were, so that led to this humanities, mass humanities funded uh, project with these listening sessions. I uh, did a blog in relation to that, so that's available with a synopsis of what came out of these discussions, and we have ongoing working groups. Uh, we've also collaborated with the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribe, North American Indian Center of Boston, and, and got funded a demonstration grant for a pre-collegiate initiative for Native youth to help create that space for interaction as well as academic support and enrichment. Uh, we, I worked with my College of Education to get some funding from the Office of Indian Education to recruit and train American Indian teachers in early childhood education. Uh, and they don't have to go to Boston to do it. So we have students from a variety of regional tribes participating in that. Again, driven by their particular interest needs uh, and our capacity at the university to benefit them. Just a couple of examples. What role do you see cultural organizations and museums like Plymouth Plantation playing in those ongoing conversations? I think organizations like Plymouth Plantation are critically important for a variety of factors. One, in terms of Native people being directly involved internally. Uh, and as external partners and collaborators with these organizations for reclamation of culture, uh, talking with several of the people who have worked here at the Wampanoag Indigenous Program over the years, they talk about how Plymouth was critically important, leading to the reclamation of Wampanoag material culture, an important thing. Uh, it's also critically important to engage directly with institutions like Plymouth Plantation so that there can be an ongoing dialogue about reinterpretation of history based on historic documents, based on archaeological research, uh, and a respectful dialogue that will lead to better understanding on both whether it's English and Wampanoag or English and Nipmuc or Spanish and Tunica, who, whoever's uh, perspectives as far as understanding what happened in the past and how that helped set the stage for where we are today. You've served as a consultant and an advisor for the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C., the Halawa Saponi, Saponi Indian Tribe of North Carolina, the Mashtika Pequot Museum. You're a member of our Board of Trustees. Um, what do you look for in a cultural collaborative partner? Really, it comes down to a willingness for honest communication and ongoing reciprocal versus transactional relationships and engagement. Uh, it, it, if, if it is a one-off, it's not a collaboration. Uh, true collaboration is where there is a degree of trust and shared goals. And the only way you get to trust and shared goals is a lot of interaction and communication. It doesn't happen overnight. 
It's not something that happens quickly, and it certainly doesn't happen quickly with indigenous communities. Uh, but, but again, it's critically important for both these institutions who are looking to tell part of the stories of indigenous peoples at particular points in times and indigenous peoples who want their stories accurately told to figure out the best way to work together. I mean, there are over 300,000 people a year that come through Plymouth Plantation. So it's critically important for, from my perspective, indigenous peoples to make sure that those 300,000 people that are coming through are getting the best information possible because those 300,000 people are also impacting local, national, and state policy as it relates to indigenous peoples in the Commonwealth. Do you have any advice for our guests on how to interact with Native people if they're meeting someone who's indigenous for the first time? To foster that collaborative spirit and to be open to conversation? I'd say for the average guest, or actually the average resident in the, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, is to be in a space to where they're just opening to listening uh, because they have to assume that they have been minimally informed about the lives of historic or contemporary indigenous peoples. So they should not feel threatened or challenged when they're exposed to new information. Uh, they, they should understand that they have a deficit of knowledge and that the indigenous staff here at Plymouth or other institutions are looking to help bridge that gap, to help fill that deficit of knowledge and to approach it from that as opposed to feeling that uh, your elementary school teacher is being attacked for not talking about all these additional things which that teacher probably didn't know about or have access to either. Uh, educational institutions are, if they're good ones, perpetually evolving. So you should be, you should be disappointed if you're not getting new information at an institution like this. Coming back around to a contemporary conversation that we're hearing a lot about in the media right now, um, Statistics show that in 2016, there are 40 Massachusetts schools that still mm -hmm. have native mascots. Mm -hmm. This has become very controversial in mm -hmm. the state. Why do you think it's such a controversial topic? This could be a whole other separate segment in and of itself. Uh, I think at its core, the reason, one of the reasons it is controversial and why there are many non-native and some native people pushing back against a move to change these mascots is that they correlate native opposition to the mascots as being called racist. Uh, I'm not going to say that the people that support these mascots are racist. I don't know them. I don't know anything about them. Um, so I, I'm not going to take that position. Some may very well be. But, but that's, I think, what leads to an immediate retrenchment and uh, resistance to hear about the harm that those mascots can cause, particularly to Native children in those school districts. And I don't rely on my opinion for that. I look to organizations like the American Psychological Association in their statements they've taken on it uh, and what they view as its harmful impacts on Native students. And so the position that I would always ask any school using native mascots is if this is impacting the educational outcomes, 
negatively for native youth in your school district? Are you providing them equal access to education in your school district? It's a question I would ask. Uh, many people also say that by using these mascots, we are honoring native people. So then the next question to that would be, well, which Native people have you consulted with and what are you actually teaching your students about Native people in your schools that would lead to some sense of you're actually working to honor Native people through the use of this image or images or names? Uh, and those are things, I mean, I know that it's woefully underrepresented in the mass curriculum in general, so I'd be shocked if there was a intense effort to engage with indigenous peoples from this space. And that's another thing, too, that I think it's important to position this with. I'm a guest here. This is the traditional territories of the people I've named, as well as others like the Stockbridge, who are no longer in Massachusetts, but are actually in Wisconsin these days. But this is their traditional homelands. And, and as far as I'm concerned, their views and perspectives on what's happening here in this issue, should their voices should be privileged. Uh, I'm an urban Indian. I live in Boston. Uh, my homeland is in North Carolina. I'm a guest here. We talk about what's going on in North Carolina in relation to mascots. My perspective as a Lumbee and other indigenous peoples in that state should be privileged because, again, that is our traditional homelands. But that's, that's my take on this. It's why I think it is so controversial and contentious. Uh, other states have looked at legislation where if there was agreed upon a negotiated process between a tribe, an indigenous tribe, and a school, an agreement was reached on a particular image, then the image was allowed to stay. California and Oregon, I think, are two states that have done that. Maybe that's a different way to look at what's happening here in Massachusetts because it does directly engage indigenous peoples uh, and it does address the question, if you were really honoring us, let's have a conversation about this. Let's talk about what we don't see as respectful. Let's talk about what could or might be respectful. And let's talk about what that means in terms of, again, it goes back to reciprocity versus a transactional relationship. Let's go back and look at your curriculum and see what you're doing or not doing to actually educate your students about Native peoples in this place. And what does that mean in terms of your responsibility to Native peoples in Massachusetts? And frankly, it's a conversation that should be happening statewide on a variety of levels, not just mascots. Before we wrap up, I'm curious to know if there was one thing, I know it's difficult to usually single out one thing, but if there was something that you would want non-Native people to understand or recognize about what it means to be an indigenous person or a native person in the United States in 2017, what would that be? Huge question, Hillary. <laughs> and I'm going to try to give you a fairly concise response. Stereotypes have dominated perceptions of native peoples from the 15th century to the 21st century. I think it's critically important to move beyond those stereotypes one of our challenges is there are so few Native people in the United States as a result of virgin soil epidemics and ongoing disease, as a result of warfare, as a result of Indian slavery, as a result of expulsion of Native peoples north or south of the U.S. border. Uh, we're under 2%. So many, many non-Native people 
will have minimal interaction with native peoples whom they know are indigenous. Even though our numbers are growing, we're still just a very small sliver uh, of the population. So I think it is incumbent upon non-native people to start seeing images of native people in the media. Canada actually has Aboriginal Public Television Network to make sure that that happens, but some comparable type platform here in the United States so that native people are humanized, uh, that non-native people view us as being active players and participants in 21st century American society, and that native nations have a distinct status politically as indigenous peoples. There's actually a United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that ultimately the U.S. bought into to a limited degree. But that we're still here, we're viable members of society, uh, we have not surrendered our indigenous identity because we no longer dress in buckskin and feathers, uh, except at particular times and, and uh, in places. But I think those are some of the biggest things that I would say that I, I would like non-native people to know. And also, too, I'd like non-native people to know that wherever they're at, within the territory of the United States, they are a guest on someone else's land. And to ask themselves the question, well, what does being a guest on the land of this particular indigenous community mean? What responsibilities do I have as a guest? Want to learn more? Download or stream more full-length interwoven episodes available from iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more podcast news or to catch new episodes first, join the conversation on our social media channels or visit us online at Plymouth.org. Interwoven is brought to you by Plymouth Plantation, hosted by Hilary Goodnow and produced by Tom Begley. Our original theme music, Voices from the Past, was composed by John Dante Previdini. Thanks for listening.